So let's get into the Word of God this evening. Pray with me, won't you? Lord God, we do thank you for this day, and we thank you, Lord, for just having our, our dear family members uh, visit uh, Bethany and Luke, and we're so blessed to have them with us tonight, and we're also blessed just to have the fellowship here. And so we pray, Lord God, that as we enter into your word, that you might instruct us and teach us, give us understanding so that we might be faithful doers of your word. Lord, we also want to bring our hearts before you and our minds, and we just ask that you'd make us clean, wash us, purify us with your word, and uh, we just thank you for all your goodness toward us, and we look forward to your return. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. As Lucan was sharing just about uh, the days being evil, and uh, as we see the effects of, of evil things happening in the world, and doesn't it seem like just more and more we hear about mass shootings or murders or these sorts of things? It seems like it's just things are speeding up, but I want to say something that happened in the chapter that we're in tonight in Luke chapter 3. This is awesome because it's an incredible announcement of Messiah and who he is. And, and the world in which he came into was not an easy world. In fact, I wouldn't say that it was any less evil than the world we live in today. In fact, we might actually be in a better time living today uh, than, than, they, than the Jews were at that time. They'd just gone through years of persecution, uh, not just... Uh, like 50 years, we're talking hundreds of years of persecution, and uh, they had been through so much trial, so much trouble, and they were looking forward to Messiah's arrival. Now, Messiah's arrival had been come, or the Christ, the anointed one, sorry, I have something in my eye, had been announced uh, by the prophets that it was coming, and actually a date was given for his arrival by Daniel the prophet in Daniel chapter 9. Uh, of course, you have to do a little math and homework with that, but there was a starting time for the countdown, which was uh, the announcement to the decree to rebuild Jerusalem, which went out, and then you could count up the timeline, and you would have arrived at a particular date. Of course, this is a, a few years early of it, because that date is actually the triumphal entry into Jerusalem, but this is all setting up for it. And John the Baptist was also prophesied that he would prepare the way for the Lord. That's where we're picking up here in Luke chapter 3. So let's read together. Now, in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea, Herod being tetrarch of Galilee, his brother Philip the tetrarch of Iturea, and region of Trachonitis, and Lysanias, tetrarch of Abilene, while Annas and Caiaphas were high priests, the word of God came to John, the son of Zacharias, in the wilderness. And I'm going to stop there. There's a lot of names right away in Luke's account. Now remember, Luke set out to give you and I a more orderly account of the events that happened with the birth of Jesus Christ and his ministry. And right out of the gate, Luke is giving us certain people that he's recording were, were around at this point in time. And in a sense, it would be like saying that at this time, Ronald Reagan was governor of California. And right away, we would know, oh, that's within this time period, okay? And so Luke sets this up with first Tiberius Caesar. Tiberius Caesar 
This would put us, because we're, again, we're in the 15th year of Tiberius Caesar, which we would arrive at either late 28 AD or the very beginning of 29 AD. So that's where we're at in the timeline here. Um, and then he says, when Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea. Now, for a long time, they questioned that Pontius Pilate even existed or that he was in Judea until they found a stone, and you can go see it today in the Israeli Museum. It's called the Pilate Stone or Tablet, and it has his name right there on the stone as the governor over Judea, uh, which was unearthed. And so we, we know that, that both Tiberius was Caesar, Pontius Pilate, these are two historical figures governing over Judea. And now let me show you this map real quick because this map is going to break up these next ones, okay? Uh, and it might be hard to see. Sorry if it's hard to see. I couldn't find a, uh, a wider layout. But uh, the tan, the light area is all Roman-controlled area. Now, the Romans actually were in control of everything, but they allowed the Herods after Herod the Great died, to break up their, his kingdom into three other rulers. Now, the word tetrarch is actually for uh, a kingdom broken up into four rulers, okay? And so when they, when they add the name tetrarch onto something, it's like one of the four. And so we have Rome ruling a big portion of the area. Then we're going to see this next one, which is Herod being tetrarch of Galilee, now, Herod Antipas ruled over Galilee and Perea from his father's death until he was dis- deposed by the emperor Caligula in AD 39. Uh, this is the Herod who imprisoned and eventually executed John the Baptist. Uh, and we're going to see here today, John spoke out against a marriage to Herodias, who was actually Herod's brother's wife, she left Herod's brother Philip, who was actually in Rome, different Philip than the one we're going to read about here. He was in Rome. Herodias left because Herod uh, was, Antipas was, was in control. And so she went and married him. And John spoke out against that marriage as adulterous. And so as a result of that, Herod is going to arrest John and eventually behead him. Um, it's also the uh, Antipas who wonders about Jesus' identity and uh, he's called, Jesus calls him that fox. And uh, Luke records uh, G- that Jesus stood before Herod during his trial. If you remember one of the people, Pilate sent Jesus before Herod. And Herod's like, oh, do some tricks for us. We want to see some tricks. And he, he toyed with Jesus rather than recognizing who Jesus was. And so that, that's Herod Antipas. So he ruled, oh, you can leave that map up for me, Miji. Yeah, um, he ruled over uh, the area that is colored in yellow. So the whole area of the Galilee and then down through, down to the uh, Dead Sea there uh, where the Jordan passes through. And the reason why that's important is because the events of chapter 3 happen in his area of ruling in the kingdom. Because um, it's going to be down south of Jerusalem uh, along the Jordan River where these events happen. So Philip, the half-brother of Herod Antipas, he's the next one mentioned here. Uh, Philip, tetrarch of Iturea in the region of Trachonitis. And Philip is, uh, he ruled and uh, from 4 BC until AD 34. And he was generally recognized as the best of the Herodian rulers, if there can be a best. But he died without an heir. And his territory eventually becomes a part of 
Roman province of Syria. And he's only mentioned here in the New Testament. Now, you're going to see his area is the green area kind of there in the north, which would be up by the Syrian border. Uh, Of course, there's the Golan region, Golan Heights, which is that disputed area. Uh, Then we had Licinius. Now, Licinius, the Tetrarch of Abilene, uh, we don't have really much information at all about. Uh, so we just, it just uh, not, not enough information has been found yet about him. But he, uh, so, so we don't, can't do anything with him right now. But, but all, for, all of these rulers are mentioned here in this very beginning part of Luke. Now we're going to, just give me one minute and we'll get to Annas and Caiaphas. But I want to say something about these rulers. What we have is people who are ungodly. And I want to make that clear. All of these rulers are ungodly people, and they're actually even somewhat abusive to the people and what they're taking tax-wise and uh, how they're taking advantage of people. And they're not really doing any, any earthly good for the people. So, so could just consider that this is the world that the gospel is coming into. Now, we get to Annas and Caiaphas. So Luke's reference is to these two high priests, and generally it's recorded that there was only one high priest, but in AD 6, Annas came to the office, and he was uh, deposed in AD 15. Now, uh, he was eventually succeeded by his son-in-law, Caiaphas, who served from AD 18 to 37. Why is the high priest important? The high priest has a lot of power and a lot of authority. Remember, he's the one who is going to oversee the whole temple, all of the Jewish religion. And we're going to see that Jesus has many interactions with both. Uh, with both. And eventually, we'll see that uh, both are guilty of trying to, uh, sending him, Jesus to the cross. But it was Annas who actually tried to retain the political power, even though he wasn't technically the high priest. He still really called much of the shots, and everybody knew it. And so it's interesting that Luke even records this, as well as Josephus, the, the Jewish historian. They all record this. And uh, uh, some years back, they found the Caiaphas ossuary. They actually found the tomb of Caiaphas, and I have a picture here. Um, so this, this on the side there actually is the name of Caiaphas. And this was the ossuary box. They, they actually think that this was the son of Caiaphas, the high, the high priest, um, because of uh, the time frame and whatnot. But the, the entire um, tomb of Caiaphas' family was found. And there were bones of a, a man in, in his 60s that were found in that ossuary box. And so, so these are all historical individuals. And the reason why I want to take this time and talk about history, I know some of us are like, history. Oh, snooze fest, uh, is because it's important to recognize that these events happen in real time, in real history, and it, it, Jesus is a real Savior for me and for you. And that's why we want to recognize the, how Luke records these things because it really helps us place Jesus in history. Let's go on to verse uh, 2. Well, the word of God came to John, the son of Zacharias. I'll pick up there in the middle. The word of God came to John, the son of Zacharias, in the wilderness, verse 3. And he went into all the region around the Jordan, preaching a baptism of repentance for the remission of sins. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, saying, 
the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make his path straight. Every valley shall be filled and every mountain and hill brought low. The crooked places shall be made straight and the rough ways smooth. And all flesh shall see the salvation of God. And as we enter into chapter 3, we're introduced to the actual ministry of John the Baptist, the son of Zacharias the priest. And of course, we, uh, some weeks ago, we looked at Luke chapter 1 and we, we saw the story of the birth of John the Baptist and uh, the announcement to Zacharias when he was serving in the temple. But now we actually get the ministry and purpose for John the Baptist. Now, I want to start out with just saying the word of God came to John. I think that's an important sentence not to miss here. Because when we see that the word of God came, one, it's, it's uh, very much like the prophets of the Old Testament. The word of the Lord came to, and then there was a response. But I think it's also important that we understand that when the word of God comes, who will it find? What will it find? Will it find a fertile heart ready to receive and ready to do? Or will it find a heart that's hard and durable and not ready to receive? And John the Baptist was one who was committed. The word of God came to him and he responded to begin his ministry. Some hear the word of God regularly and it falls on, as Jesus put it, and we'll eventually get to this parable of the sower, hard, durable hearts that doesn't receive the word and it is actually rejecting the word. So you'll be ever hearing but never understanding, ever seeing, but never perceiving. And, uh, and the idea here is that when, when we hear God's word, we don't want to be a, a durable heart that is, that is unwilling to yield to God. Rather, we want to receive the word of God ready to do his will, not to ignore the parts we don't like. And we're going to see something about John's character that is so interesting. John is, and Jesus refers to John the Baptist as the most humble man in the kingdom. Among men born of women, Jesus says about John the Baptist, there's none greater than John the Baptist. But then he goes on to say, but whoever becomes the least will still be greater. When he's teaching his disciples about who will be great in the kingdom of God, he basically is saying that you've got to become the most humble man to be greater than John the Baptist. And so we know that John was a humble man. He was kind of a weird guy. He, he wore funny clothes, Matthew records. He wore camel's hair and a, a belt around his waist. And he ate locusts and honey. For, for, he was like this survivalist out in the desert. And, but he was also a fiery guy, preaching this message to everybody. In fact, John the Baptist was very focused on what his purpose was. And that was to declare or to make known Messiah is coming. Messiah is coming. Prepare. Get ready for Messiah. And so it says that it came to him in the wilderness. So he went into all the region around the Jordan, preaching a baptism of repentance for remission of sins. Now, baptism was not an uncommon thing to the Jews. They used baptism for some different things. Uh, One of the things that they would use baptism for was if a non-Jew came into Judaism, if a Gentile came into Judaism, 
that Gentile would need to be baptized. Okay, and baptism is actually a word that we, it's actually a, a made-up word uh, in the English language from the King James Bible translators. Uh, the word in Greek is baptizo, to baptize, and, and it literally means to dip or to dye something, like uh, to take a piece of cloth and dye it, dip it and dye and, and change the color of that cloth. That's that's where the word comes from. Well, when the King James translators were working with the Greek word baptizo, they just decided to, to bring this new word into the English language, and so we got baptize and baptism, and that's where, where it comes from. But when we, when we think about baptism, we need to understand it's a word that has to do with identification. So a Gentile who became a Jew, Jewish proselyte, he would wanted to identify with being a Jew. So he would be baptized by the Jews. And that would be identification as a Jew. John's baptism, we, we read, is a baptism of repentance and the remission of sins. And so all those coming out to hear John and to be baptized are identifying with repentance and the remission of sins. But understand what the message is here. As John is calling people to baptism in preparation for Messiah, every Jew hearing this is is being confronted that being a Jew isn't enough. Wait, I got to be like a Gentile and go and be baptized? And, And so that's what the Jewish ear is hearing as they're being confronted with John's baptism. Now, let me talk about repentance for a minute. Um. Metanoia is, is the word for repentance, and, and we kind of can hear uh, English words in there. Meta means after, right? We're used to meta. In fact, uh, Facebook bought out, uh, what do they call it, meta something or whatever? But, it, but it's like the whole idea is after reality, uh, meta virtual. I can't remember what they call it. But um, the idea here is it's after this. It's, it's beyond something else. And so... Metanoia actually means to be, have a change of mind, a turning about. And, and, it, and it, the idea is that it's always associated with repentance and beginning a new relationship with God. So when we, when we hear the word baptize, or, or sorry, when we hear the word repent, the call is to have a change of mind and a change of course of action. So it's a turning away from one way and turning to something else. And so it's about an attitude and an action in in accordance with a new relationship with God. So when John is calling people to repentance, he's telling them, hey, you need to turn from your ways and turn toward God. I'm preparing you. Now, why is this so important, this repentance? John, again, is preparing people to receive Messiah. He's helping everybody understand and know Messiah is coming. Messiah is coming. You want to be ready to receive Messiah. You don't want to just continue on about your way and reject Messiah. You want to be ready to receive him and the salvation he's bringing. Now, the word remission, remission of sins, is that that act of freeing from an obligation, guilt or punishment, the idea is pardon or cancellation. So literally, this is liberty from sins. So there, he's preaching this baptism of repentance 
and liberty from sin. Now, he's not saying that the baptism is what's going to save you. He's preparing people's hearts to receive Messiah, who's going to give that liberty. But we, we know from the Old Testament that, that people act in faith, and as it's said of Abraham, as we went through the book of Romans, uh, Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. It, it, God actually said that, that because of your faith, it's, the righteousness is already credited. Christ hasn't died yet, but it's given to you because you're acting in faith. You're already acting in belief in God. And so the idea here is that as John is preparing people and announcing the, the coming of Messiah, they're getting their hearts ready. They're already taking a step in faith and dependence upon God. And so... We have this baptism here that he's preaching that has to do with repentance and the remission of sin. Now, there's a quote here from Isaiah. And uh, we read this quote from Isaiah chapter 40. Uh, and you can go later and read the whole chapter of Isaiah. But uh, this, is, this particular part is being quoted from Isaiah 40 verses 3 through 5. And it says, as it's written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, saying, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight, every valley shall be filled and every mountain and hill brought low, the crooked places shall be made straight and the rough ways smooth, okay? Now this is, excuse me, this is the idea of preparing for a king. There's a king coming. And, and uh, we're going to prepare for the king. And so we're going to smooth out all the roads, valleys, dips, we're going we're gonna to fill up. So when the king comes, he has the most easy, gentle road, and he's going to be really pleased with us because we prepared for our king. But John's not doing this physically, he's doing this spiritually in the hearts of the people. Prepare, get right, repent, turn away from your evil deeds. Be ready to receive God because he's making himself known to you. Become dependent upon God and not upon yourself. Prepare. That was John's ministry. Now, the last part of Isaiah that he quotes here, and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. We've already seen this two other times in Luke's gospel where it includes more than the Jew. That, that this gospel message that's coming the, the work of Jesus Christ is meant for more than just the Jew. It's meant for all flesh. That's good news for us who, who are Gentiles. And, of course, now in Christ there's neither Jew nor Gentile, so we just say the church. And that, this is where Isaiah is, is. So Isaiah is prophesying this 700 years prior to Jesus' arrival. And... I, want, I don't want to miss that whole idea that these prophets are not just worthless prophecies that no one can understand. In fact, the New Testament says God said it, now God did it. And that's, the, that's what we want to make sure we take, that God is always faithful to accomplish what he says. Let's go to verse 7. Then he said to the multitudes that came out to be baptized by him, Brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Now, this is an interesting preacher. Remember I said 
John was an interesting guy, and he is the most humble guy, but he's also confrontational or, or strict. He, he's not like what we think of today. Let's give a real easy gospel. Let, let's try to win people. Like, let, let's be real favorable to them. And let, let's, let's put on all these things that we make it easy. Don't, don't get too confrontational with the Bible. Let's keep it the Bible light and just kind of hope that over time they, they kind of come through. That's not John's message. John's message is super confrontational. Notice it said that he said to the multitudes that came out to be about, these people who were already coming to him, multitudes, and as they come out, he calls them brood of vipers. Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? This is not how to win friends and influence people. It's just not. But, but, but I will tell you this, John is bold and he's truthful. As he confronts them as they're coming, the, the idea of the brood of vipers actually comes from another prophecy from Isaiah, speaking about the wickedness of man. In Isaiah 59, 3 through 8, and this is quoting about Israel's condition in preparation for Messiah. It says, for your hands are defiled with blood and your fingers with iniquity. Your lips have spoken lies. Your tongue has muttered perversity. Now this is God speaking to Israel. No one calls for justice, nor does any plead for truth. They trust in empty words and speak lies. They conceive evil and bring forth iniquity. They hatch vipers' eggs and weave the spider's webs. He who eats of their eggs dies. And from that, that which is crushed, a viper breaks out. Their webs will not become garments, nor will they cover themselves with their works. Their works are works of iniquity, and the act of violence is in their hands. Their feet run to evil, and they make haste to shed innocent blood. Their thoughts are thoughts of iniquity. Wasting and destruction are in their paths. The way of peace they have not known, and there is no justice in their ways. They have made themselves crooked paths. Whoever takes that way shall not know peace. And so as Isaiah is prophesying this word of the Lord to Israel, uh, he mentions the vipers, that idea of it's associated with wickedness and iniquity or sin. Notice that he mentions two other things here. He says that the, their, their webs of these, of these spiders won't make garments for themselves. Do you remember the first thing that Adam and Eve did in the garden after they took of the fruit and they ate it? They sewed together fig leaves to what? Make garments because they realized they were naked. Okay, see, we don't like nakedness. And, and of course, the idea of, of nakedness in Scripture, there's both a spiritual and a physical. The spiritual idea is sin is exposed. You're bare and naked. Everything is exposed. Now, just go through the catalog of your head real quick of everything that you don't want anybody to know about that, that was evil or sinful or iniquity or whatever the case is. And, and, and just, just imagine for a moment, we just put it up on the screen right here. There we go. There it is. There's your sin. Do you see it there? Uh, right? How many of you would be like, uh, I got to get out of this church fast possible? Right? I, I, no one wants to see 
our sin made public, but we have to understand that God sees. It's not hidden from God's eyes. So, so they're told that they are, uh, not only were their, will their garments not cover, their vipers, but it also says they make what? Crooked paths. Now, John's ministry is to make paths straight for the Lord, to fill in the gaps, to prepare hearts to receive God, but these workers of iniquity, they make crooked paths. They deceive and they try to lead astray and hinder the work of God. And so as John is, is these multitudes are coming out and he says, brood of vipers, we could even translate it, wicked, filthy sinners, who warned you that hell is coming? Right? It's uh, Jonathan Edwards' sinners in the hands of an angry God sermon. It's, it's just bold and to the point and truthful. This is the reality. Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Now look at the therefore. Verse 8 of Luke 3 says, Therefore, bear fruits worthy of repentance. Do not begin to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I say to you that God is able to raise up children to Abraham from these stones. And even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Therefore, every tree which does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So as they're coming out and to be baptized, and John challenges them on why they're coming to be baptized, they, hey, you're not going to trust in yourselves, are you? Because you are full of wickedness. And then he brings up Abraham. So, he's, he, so there's a, an exhortation of bear fruits worthy of repentance. So that means that's, that's the whole idea of, Deeds and actions that show that you're actually a repentant person. But then he says, and and don't you go on saying that Abraham's your daddy. Because it's not going to work. See, that was a common Jewish idea. And even still today, that's a common Jewish idea. I have Abraham for a father. So I'm under the covenant of Abraham. And and so therefore, I'm good. I'm not going to be destroyed. Because I was born of Abraham, physically. And so John the Baptist speaking under the word of the Lord, he says, For I say to you, God is able to raise up children of Abraham from these stones. You can be replaced, people. That's what John is saying. And I want to let you know that the axe is laid to the root of the tree. So we we don't need much explanation for that. We know if there's an axe at the root of the tree, it's about ready to get cut down. And then he says, and thrown into the fire because it doesn't bear good fruit. It's a worthless tree. And so, therefore, it has to be thrown into the fire. Fire obviously representing judgment. So, that's, this is John's message to those coming out. And, and it's a fiery message, but it's a truthful message. And, and we have to understand, by the way, I keep saying Messiah, and I want to make sure we understand for, for those that are, are not as familiar. The word Christ is the same as Messiah. It has the exact same meaning. Christ is what we get from the Greek, Christos, okay, and it means anointed one. Messiah, Mashiach in the Hebrew, means anointed one, okay? So it's the same word, interchangeable. It's not the last name of Jesus, although the, the, 
uh, New Testament will say Jesus Christ as Jesus the anointed one, and that's what it's telling us. So as I use those words interchangeably, I just want to make sure that you're aware of what's ha- what I'm saying when I say those two things. But it's the idea of the anointed one prophesied of God throughout the Old Testament. So, so John is preparing people to receive Jesus as Savior. He doesn't want anyone to be left out. But he's going to be honest and truthful. Here's the reality of the situation. You're in danger. Your soul is in danger of the judgment of hell. That, that you are guilty for your sin. And you will be judged for your sin. Because when we sin, it's not just against a person or not just against ourselves, But our sin is actually against a God who's eternal, an everlasting God. And and when we sin against an everlasting God, guess what we end up with? An everlasting debt. And and, and it's too much for us to pay. The Bible tells us that the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God in Christ Jesus is eternal life. Romans 6.23. And so so the, the, the penalty for sin is death. And that's the, that's the only solution. That's the only way to deal with sin because God is a just God. And, and whether you say, well, it's just a small sin, just a big sin, there is no small sin because the Bible tells us that the soul that sins shall surely die. Remember, in the garden, when Adam and Eve were, before they took of that fruit, God said, you may eat of the trees of the garden, but do not eat of the fruit in the midst of the garden. That's the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Because when you eat of it, you will die. And and they took it and they ate of it, and what happened? Did they die? You're like, I feel like you got a trick question coming here, Pastor. I'm not going to commit to an answer. Yes, they died. Now, they didn't die immediately on the spot, but, but they died. Death came into the world. And, and, and since then, death has reigned, the Bible tells us. And, and you and I have no other option except the grave until Jesus came and said, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will never die. And that's the promise of God that when we, although we, might see a body, we know that that soul has gone right to be with the Lord. That Jesus conquered death in that resurrection. And so John wants the truth to be made known as he confronts them. Verse 10 says, so the people asked him saying, what shall we do then? They're responding. He answered and said to them, he who has two tunics, let let, let him give to him who has none. And he who has food, let him do likewise. Then the tax, then tax collectors also came to be baptized and said to him, "Teacher, what shall we do?" And he said to them, "Collect no more, collect no more than what is appointed to you." Likewise, the soldiers asked him, saying, "And what shall we do?" So he said to them, "Do not intimidate anyone or accuse falsely, and be content with your wages." So there's a practical application here with repentance. Now it's not saying that this is what saves you. The first thing is just practical. Show charity to those in need. If you have two tunics, give one to somebody who needs it. Show charity. If you have food and there's a person starving, share with them. Show charity. Because that's what God's going to do with you. And then when it comes to their career paths, notice that that John doesn't say, 
okay, yeah, if you're a tax collector, then you need to get out of the business. No, actually what he says is, now you're going to do it unto the Lord. You're not going to take more than what is appointed. You're, you're only going to take the taxes that are necessary. Uh, you're, you're not going to steal from people anymore. Um, and then when the soldiers came and said, well, what should we do? He didn't say, quit being a soldier. He said, now you're going to do this unto the Lord. And so for the most part, when we're called to God, when we come into salvation, for most of us now, our careers are given over to him. It doesn't mean you go have to quit being uh, a janitor, quit being uh, in a trade, quit being in an office job, or quit being whatever job you do, teacher, whatever. It, it, it means that now you just do it unto the Lord. You're doing it with a different purpose in mind. Now, there might be some jobs that you might be in that it probably you need to leave. You know, <laughs> you can figure that out. Anyway, <laughs> there are some career paths that you probably can't be a Christian and do, but for the most part, the idea is you, you surrender your career and what you do unto the Lord. Verse 15 says, Now as the people were in expectation and all reasoned in their hearts about John, whether he was the Christ or not, John answered, saying to all, I indeed baptize you with water, but one mightier than I is coming, whose sandal strap I am not worthy to loose. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire, His winnowing fan is in his hand, and he will thoroughly clean out his threshing floor and gather the wheat into his barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. So John, as he is doing this ministry, people are saying, hey, do you think he's Messiah? Do you think he's the Christ? Is he the one we're waiting for? They they know the time is, we're, we're getting close to that time that Daniel gave to us. Maybe this is the one. And, and John, as they reasoned their hearts, John made sure that they knew, uh, no, I indeed baptize you with water. I'm doing this work of baptism of water, but the one mightier than I am is coming. And now he says, whose sandal strap I'm not worthy to loose. Okay, uh, here we see the humility of John. I'm not even worthy to untie his sandal. I'm not worthy to... To do the most menial, menial job for the Messiah. That's who he is. He's great. I am nothing. That was the attitude of John the Baptist. He's got multitudes coming out. For, from, for, for the purposes of religion, boy, he looks really successful. But he says, I'm, I'm not worthy. You're looking at the wrong guy. Jesus is coming. The the Messiah is coming. And notice what he's going to do. He says he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. Now, I I don't believe that we have reason to think that these are two separate things. I think that they're one and the same when it says Holy Spirit and fire. And a part of that is the structure and also the Old Testament um, allusions to this. And I, we didn't have time to go into every prophecy tonight uh, because we, this would have been a really long sermon. But, um, but I, I believe that the idea of being, so I'm baptizing you with water, but he's going to baptize you. Remember, what does baptism have to do with? Identification. He's going to baptize you or identify you with the Holy Spirit of God and with fire. Ezekiel 36, verses 25 through 27 
we read in Ezekiel, then I will sprinkle clean water on you. This is God again speaking to Israel, and you shall be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will take the heart of stone out of your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes, and you will keep my judgments and do them. Now, go back one verse there, Miji, for me. Thanks. Um, when we think about this passage, I, this is actually one of my favorite passages because I think it's, it's something I can say, God did this in my life. Because there was a time when I was not concerned about the things of God. That was actually probably the last thing on my mind. There were a lot of other things that were in the forefront of my mind that I felt were of greater importance and more important. And, and I would say that there was a time when my heart wasn't even willing to receive the word of God. It was hard. And uh, I was hard-hearted and stubborn. But then the Holy Spirit started, began ministering to me. And he changed that heart. And, and God did this work where he, where he put a new heart in me and a new spirit within me. And he took out my heart of stone and put a heart of flesh in me and, and a heart that was ready to receive his word and ready to do his will. And as that last verse says in verse 27, that, that after uh, verse 25, of course, says, I will clean you with clean water. And then I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes. There was a time when I couldn't even imagine this being so important to me. But now this has become the most important book in my life. It, it's, it's the words of God. It's, it's something I want to not only know and understand, but I want to receive all that I can. I want to know it. I always love it when people ask me, hey, what's that? Ver-? They'll, they'll quote a verse and say, well, where's that, Pastor? It just happened Wednesday night. And uh, I said, I don't know. <laughs> Haven't memorized the whole Bible yet. That's my line. You guys can use that. If someone asks you, well, "Where's this Bible verse from?" and go, and you go, "I don't know. I haven't memorized the whole Bible yet, right?" Because I, I, sometimes the addresses are hard to find. But, but the whole idea is, I, I really wish I I had the whole Bible memorized. Uh, <laughs> that that would be amazing to to know it that well in and out. And unfortunately, because we live in this digital age, I think we've become. We suffer from digital amnesia all the time where we, we don't commit things to memory because we can just look it up, right? So, which is unfortunate. But the idea here is that God has put his spirit within me and caused me to walk in his statutes. It's, it's a work that God has done on me. And this is the promise that, that God had made to Israel. I will sprinkle you with clean water and you shall be clean. I'll do it. God didn't say you'll do this. I'll do it. And I'll put my, my spirit upon you. And I'll, I'll, I will cause, give you this new heart. And I will cause you to walk in my statutes. You're just going to do it because it's your desire. No longer because you, you, you're unwilling. And so when, when uh, John says that he's going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire, his winnowing fan is in his hand. And he will thoroughly clean out his threshing floor. Uh, the wheat is all there on the fresh th- threshing floor. And, of course, you have the husk 
that the wheat is in, but you don't want that. That's not the good stuff. The kernel of wheat is the good stuff. So you bring it to the fleshing, threshing floor and you, you throw it up or you get the fan going and you blow the chaff out of the way. You pick up the, the kernels of wheat because that's the good thing, the valuable thing, and the rest you all burn. And that's going to be the work of Messiah. He will sift us completely. Oh, man, I am out of time. Oh, I took too much time. <laughs> man, I was ready for this. I almost got to the good part. All right, let me, <laughs> let me just read verse 18 and through 20. And uh, verse 18 says, And with many other exhortations, he preached to the people, this is John the Baptist, but Herod the Tetrarch, being rebuked by him concerning Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, and for all the evils which Herod had done, also added this above all, that he shut John up in prison. And so what we're reading here is that Herod added on to his evils this, that he shut John up in prison because he was a thorn in Herod's side. John was a bold man. He wasn't afraid to say, this is truth. This is, this is what God says is true. And I'll be faithful to God. I'll be faithful to his word. And I love that. I think John is one of those people in scriptures that, that we can really look as a model. John was not reliant upon people's favor, but upon God's favor. John was willing to stand for God's will and work, no matter what people or kings were going to do to him. And I, I think that that is something that we all need that strong conviction from God, because there are times where we are put in places where we are tempted to compromise and not, uh, not truly just be so committed to the word of God and be faithful and trusting on him that, hey, listen, my life, God, is in your hands. And uh, I'll be faithful even with, with, because of the convictions. I'm not trying to just win people to myself or be a people pleaser. I want you, God, in my life. And John, John is a faithful man about that. All right, next week we'll get into the baptism of Jesus. I was hoping to do it this week, but we have ran out of time. So with that said, let's pray. Let's pray first. Yeah, we're going to pray. Lord, we thank you for this time together, and we thank you for your word. And we, God, I'm so thankful for the testimony and the witness of John. Lord, there's so little in Scripture and the Gospels about him, and, and rightfully so, Lord, you want us to focus on you. But just what a wonderful man of God he was, so faithful. And, Lord, may, may we have those convictions to, to be bold, to be truthful. Lord, we want to we we share your truth with love and kindness toward those who are lost, but we want people to be one and to have eternal life. So, God, we just pray that you might do that work in our lives. And if you've been in this room tonight and you, you know that you're you're in danger of the fire of hell and you need a Savior, I want to invite you to receive the Lord Jesus Christ and the forgiveness of sins, that you can receive that new heart as well. You just pray this prayer, Lord Jesus, forgive me of my sin. I'm ready to follow you. Come into my life. I'm now repenting of, of my sin. I'm turning toward you, Lord, and I want to be free from the burden of sin. Thank you, dear God, for your goodness toward me. And we thank you, Lord. You've been so good to each and every one of us. May our hearts be re uh, always ready to receive your word and, and soft and fertile 
we thank you and we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Matthew's gospel says, in those days, John the Baptist came preaching. You know, it's interesting because John the Baptist didn't have a very long ministry at all. In fact, it was really brief. But it's not about length of time. It's not about numbers of people. It was always about faithfulness to God. It was about being faithful to what God had had called him to do. So now, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May your hearts and mind remain faithful to him. Amen.